With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 327. It's titled, Is Student Loan Forgiveness a Good Idea? Last week, CNBC reported that President-elect Joe Biden will ask Congress to cancel $10,000 in student debt for each borrower and to extend the payment pause that's been in place since April. Borrowers of student loans haven't had to make any payments and interest has not been accruing. That provision put in place by the Trump administration expires at the end of January 2021. Biden is going to extend that and apparently going to ask Congress to cancel $10,000 of debt per student borrower. And there are some reports that he will cancel all of the debt of those who attended a public university or a historically black college or university and is earning less than $125,000 per year. There is a lot of student debt outstanding in the U.S., $1.7 trillion. It's been growing at a 9.1% annual rate since 2006. 44 million Americans owe the U.S. government about $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. The remainder is private student loans. One reason student loan debt is increasing at a 9% annual rate is there are more students going to school and borrowing money. If Biden went through with this debt forgiveness plan, it would reduce the student loan balance by about one-third, so $560 billion. Just the $10,000 per borrower piece would reduce that $1.7 trillion amount by $440 billion. And this is according to higher education expert Mark Kantrowitz. Now, right now, student loan borrowers are struggling. According to a Pew survey, six in 10 borrowers said it would be difficult for them to start paying their student loan bills in February. And 90% of federal student loan borrowers have taken advantage of the government option to pause their payments during the pandemic. There are some senators, Chuck Schumer, who have called on Biden to forgive $50,000 of debt per borrower on the first day of his presidency. Schumer said, all you need is the flick of a pen. You don't need Congress. There's some debate on whether a U.S. president has the ability to do that with the flick of of a pen or whether he or she has to work through Congress. But with the Democrats controlling both houses of Congress, it seems likely that there will be some debt forgiveness program. Senator Elizabeth Warren said 
student debt forgiveness is the single most effective economic stimulus that is available through executive action. Last month, in a congressional hearing with Fed Chair Jay Powell, Warren said, if people who, instead of spending that money in the economy, are spending that money by sending money back to the federal government on their student loan payments, that is a problem for the economy, is it not? Fed Chair Jay Powell said that if people were weighed down by debt or if they were unemployed, it can, quote, weigh on economic activity. He also referred to research that showed over long periods of time, student debt can hurt people's credit history and ability to own a home. He said, in effect, those people are unable to participate, perhaps in the economy, to the full extent that they might be able to, which would weigh on the economy. How would this debt forgiveness work? Well, right now, on the U.S. government federal balance sheet, there's loan receivables, over a trillion dollars of student loan debt sitting there as a receivable. For the fiscal year ending 2019, Total assets of the federal government were $3.9 trillion, of which $1.1 trillion was direct student loans. But here's the thing. $3.9 trillion in assets, $26.9 trillion in liabilities. The difference, the deficit, is $22.9 trillion. The U.S. government is effectively insolvent. It owes more than its assets. And if the... U.S. government wrote off $440 billion of student loans, it would just increase the level of insolvency. It would not sink the government by any means. The Education Department, according to some private consulting work that they contracted out to understand what the potential losses are on their student loans, found, according to a report by the Wall Street Journal, that losses on the $1.37 trillion of student loans outstanding at the time this report was compiled would equal $435 billion. Only $935 billion would be paid back. And that didn't include about $150 billion in loans originated by private lenders that are guaranteed by the government. Each year, the government lends $100 billion to students to cover tuition to more than 6,000 colleges and universities. It doesn't look at credit scores or the field of study or whether students will make enough after graduating to cover the debt. The Wall Street Journal article reported that between 2005 and 2016, four in 10 student loans, most of them federal ones, went to borrowers with credit scores below the subprime threshold. That's assuming they actually had a credit score, which at the time that I took out my first student loan, which I'll talk about a little later in this episode. I didn't have a credit score, nor, frankly, did I know what I was doing. But here's the thing. The consultants found out that a major driver of those losses were students who went on some type of income-driven repayment plan, an income share, to where they only had to pay a percentage of their income, and ultimately the loan could be forgiven after a number of years. If a loan isn't paid back in full because the payments are based on income and the income isn't growing and ultimately the the loan is written off after 20 years or so, then that will lead to a loss. 
In addition, that study found that there are millions of other borrowers that would default on smaller amounts, typically less than $10,000, after they drop out of a community college or a for-profit college. One of the comments in this Wall Street Journal article on the private consultant's conclusion regarding the potential losses for the U.S. government student loan program is that taxpayers would be on the hook for this. If the government wrote off $440 billion of student loans, U.S. government would receive less interest income and principal payments annually. Interest, if we assume a 5% interest rate on $1.5 trillion of student loans, is, is only about $85 billion. Now, I say only because total U.S. government revenue is $3.4 trillion. Interest income from student loans is only about 2.5%. Expenditures in fiscal year 2020 were $6.5 trillion. The deficit was $3.1 trillion. 14.7% of economic output or GDP. Nominal GDP in fiscal year 2020 was $21.2 trillion. This deficit was 14.7% of that number, the highest since the great financial crisis, where the deficit was 9.8%. The highest deficit ever was in 1943 at 29.6% of GDP. The U.S. ran a $3.1 trillion deficit in 2020, and the Federal Reserve increased the amount of treasuries on their balance sheet, essentially funding that deficit. $2.2 trillion is the additional treasury bonds that the Federal Reserve bought. So $2.2 trillion of the $3.1 trillion deficit. These student loans are a tiny percent of what the government is spending, much of which the Federal Reserve financed indirectly. The Federal Reserve didn't just give the money to the Treasury. They went through the accounting mechanism of buying treasury bonds. But that's what happened. The Federal Reserve created the money out of thin air to purchase treasury bonds to plug the deficit. Now, when I started hearing about forgiving student loans, canceling them, my impression was the student loan burden is as high as it's ever been, that students are struggling tremendously compared to when I took out student loans in the late 80s and early 90s. What I found was the average student loan, and again, this is based on data from Mark Kantorwitz, this is just the average student loan balance for graduates with bachelor's degree when they leave school. In 1992, 1993, it was $9,300. 46% of students had student loan debt. That's about how much I had. I had a little over $10,000 in student loans when I left graduate school. Today, the average student loan balance is $29,900 just for students with bachelor's degrees. 69% of graduating students have student loan balances. That amount, going from $9,300 to $29,900, is a 4.6% annual increase. Now, that's a burden. No doubt. And if it's growing at 4.6%, it's growing faster than inflation. Yet if I look at what students are making when they graduate, 
1993, or a year after they graduated, so in 1994, an engineer starting salary was $30,900. A humanities graduate was making $21,300. So if we compare that salary to the amount of their debt, the engineer made 3.3 times the amount of student loan debt they had. And the humanities major made 2.3 times the amount of student loan debt they have. If we look at what engineers typically make coming out of university today, it's close to $70,000, or about 2.3 times the amount of their student debt. Back in 1992, they made 3.3 times the amount that they owed. Now it's 2.3 times. So they owe more relative to their salary. But the interest rates are lower now, so they're able to handle that more. But it's not this huge change that I had expected. For the humanities graduate, they went from earning 2.3 times their student loan balance to 1.8 times. Now, part of that is Pell Grants, which are grants given to low-income students to essentially pay for school. I got a lot of Pell Grants when I went to school. That program has only grown about 3.9% per year, the maximum payout amount per student. So it has not grown as fast as student debt levels. Now we can say, well, maybe college graduates aren't able to find jobs. The unemployment rate for recent graduates was 5.1% in 1992. It was 3.9% before the pandemic hit in February 2020. And so a greater percentage of recent graduates had jobs in early 2020 than back in 1992. Now, the unemployment rate, at least in September, was 9.1%, according to some data from the New York Fed, which suggests that, yeah, recent graduates are struggling to get jobs. It is harder today than it was in 1992, but not that much difficult. And I don't recall calls to cancel student loan debt back in the early to the mid-90s. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts where your money can earn 11 times the national average and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. A study by Pew found that millennials with a bachelor's degree or an advanced degree with a full-time job had median annual earnings of about $56,000 in 2018, roughly equal to college-educated Gen X workers in 2001. Again, we're adjusting for inflation, so this is in 2017 dollars. University graduates, roughly the same income. Whereas those that didn't have a university degree, millennial workers, made less than Gen X and baby boomers at that same age. So having the university degree has allowed younger generations to keep up with earlier generations. Yes, the student loan debt balances are higher, but they are manageable because interest rates are lower. I thought, well, maybe the pressure is coming from housing cost being so much higher. The median sales price for a home was $120,000 in 1992 about 5.6 times the starting humanities major salary. In September 2020, the median sales price for a home in the U.S. was $324,000, six times the starting humanities major salary. Not that much different. Now, it depends on where you live. There are certainly places where it's way more expensive and houses are unaffordable for university graduates. But if we look at the medians and the median salary, it's not that much different from earlier generations. One of the big differences, though, that is driving more student debt balances, and there is a percentage that have debt way more than 30000 and those are graduate students. In 1992, 9% of the population had an advanced degree. Today, it's 15%. By and large, those individuals are borrowing to help finance their graduate degree. What are some of the downside if this student debt is canceled? Well, one, there could be a backlash. Some of these arguments were made by Noah Smith in an article for Bloomberg. There are those that decided not to go to college because they didn't want to take on debt. They felt it was too expensive. And now the government's coming in and canceling the student debt of students that chose to go to college. There's the idea of moral hazard, that if debts are canceled, that people will think that will just be a regular occurrence, a stimulus measure when there's a recession, in which case they might be willing to take on more debt. And then there's the idea, well, would this even be a good stimulus? Because it's not as if each student now gets $10,000. They don't have to make a student loan payment, which would be a huge relief for these students. So maybe they'll go buy a car, borrow money to buy a car because they feel wealthier or buy something else. Or they might just save the money, in which case it would have no impact on the economy. 
As I mentioned, when I was studying at university, at the University of Cincinnati, I went to the financial aid office and they gave me a paper. And for their first few years, my college was free. Between Pell Grants and scholarships, I was able to cover the cost uh, of college. I was living at home. I was working 20 hours a week. It was fine. As I became a junior or senior, tuition had gone up. Pell Grants didn't cover as much, and there was a shortfall. And the financial aid office gave me a loan, or they showed me the paperwork for a loan. There's this idea that students, when they consider a student loan, that they consider their ability to, to pay it off. Is this a good investment? I did no such thing. I needed to finish my school. They told me how much I needed to borrow. I borrowed the money. I figured I'd pay it off somehow. I don't even know what the interest rate was. I just did it. I was a finance major. In fact, I was going through some paperwork recently, getting rid of old paperwork. I bought a car back when I was at school because my other car broke and I needed transportation to get to work, to get to school. My interest rate was 14.6%. Crazy high interest. But I didn't have a choice. I borrowed the money. Student loans are structured terribly. You're borrowing money. You have no idea whether you're going to be able to pay it back because you don't know if you're going to get a job, yet you're committed to this loan, irrespective of what you earn. They don't do that for mortgages. I'm in my fourth month trying to get approved for a mortgage, and I have income, and so I'm confident I'll pay it back. But yet we set up student loans like they're a mortgage payment. And the reality is, it shouldn't be structured that way. Dalia Jimenez is a law professor and director of the Student Loan Law Initiative at University of California, Irvine, said of student loans, it's a good bet. But for the people who are suffering the most, this bet didn't work out. Taking out a student loan shouldn't be a bet. It should be an investment. And there should be some leeway based on the outcome. And the way to do that is income share agreements. Have the repayment of the loan based on how much the graduate makes. We discussed income share agreements in episode 307. They've been around for years. They were proposed by Milton Freeman back in the mid-50s. Why aren't student loans set up that way? More and more students have that option. It will lead to lower payments, according to U.S. government consultants, on the amounts of student loans that are already outstanding. They're not going to get entirely paid. In my opinion, that's okay. I also think that universities should have some skin in the game and other trade schools and community college. There should be some linkage to repayment based on income share agreements to what the university receives that they shouldn't just get all their money up front, that they should have some stake as to their student outcomes. Now, there would be a lot of work to figure out how to structure that, but just setting up student loans, the university or the other school gets paid right away, the student's on the hook, irrespective of whether they can get a job or not. They can't really get out of the student loan due to bankruptcies. There are some select forgiveness programs, but it should be tied to what the student makes and earns, and the university and the student should have an incentive for the student to make money, to get a job, to help repay the loan and a benefit from the training. 
As for should the Biden administration cancel $10,000 of student loans per student, I'd be okay with that if it was accompanied by a longer-term plan to fix the system. There would be such a psychological relief for some students, for some graduates, to just know that they didn't have that burden on them, many of which didn't realize what the burden would be when they signed the papers, like I did. And they would give them the flexibility to be more entrepreneurial, to not feel like they have to be stuck at one job because they have these student loan payments. I think it would be an amazing experiment to see what happens and then work on restructuring the program. Because, again, it's such a small percentage of overall revenue for the federal government, only about two and a half percent of revenue with regards to the interest income. But we're sitting here with a 15 percent government deficit to GDP, most of which was funded by the Federal Reserve. This would be a small experiment. It wouldn't even cost $440 billion. That's just the balance sheet hit to a federal government that already has a $23 trillion deficit. Now, should we write off $50,000 of student loans? I'm not so sure about that. $10,000, yes. It would have an impact. It would help many with lower incomes that are really struggling to make those payments. But more than anything, more and more university and other trade school tuition needs to be funded through some type of income share agreement so that all the key parties have skin in the game. That's episode 327. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing, there's two ways I can help with that. First, consider signing up for my Insider's Guide email list. This is an email I send to listeners where I preview that week's podcast episode, include the show note links, and share an article on money, investing, and the economy, as well as other valuable content. It's free, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Second, if you would like some additional guidance in building and managing an institutional quality portfolio, Money for the Rest of Us Plus can help you with that. Money for the Rest of Us Plus gives you access to professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to help you stay on track, tune out the noise, and grow your wealth with confidence. There are model portfolio examples that will help jumpstart your investing. You can see how I'm investing and all the trades that I make, and you get access to video lessons that will help you step-by-step to create an investment portfolio that will help you achieve your financial goals. You can learn more about Money for the Rest of Us Plus at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.